Welcome to Christianity Lesson 7, The Fruit of the Spirit, also called the Testimony of a Christian. We're going to look at the nine fruit of the Spirit in this lesson because as charismatics, Pentecostals, whatever you want to call us, we tend to really get caught up with the gifts of the Spirit, which are wonderful, but we often forget that those are how God wants to manifest the, the gifts and how God shows off. And as charismatics and Pentecostals in our circles, I've, I've observed and witnessed that we tend to put more credence, maybe more gravitas, more, I don't know, respect or honor towards people who are using the gifts. And we totally forgot that that is how God manifests this, this, the gifts of the Spirit. They're, they are the manifestation of the Spirit as He wills. So we're going to look at this because the fruit of the Spirit is how you and I are to manifest by the Word of God. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for helping us with this Lesson 7, the fruit of the Spirit, the testimony of a Christian. I pray that your Word would dwell in us richly, that it would produce tremendous fruit, that your Word would dwell in us to your glory and our betterment. Give the students, the, the new members, the new believers understanding and anoint me to teach these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming back to the whole charismatic thing, I'm of the firm conviction that if we can manifest and develop the fruit of the Spirit on a regular basis, then the gifts of the Spirit will be greater in our life as well. I want us to be forewarned that just because something can manifest a supernatural thing Number one, it doesn't mean it's God. And number two, if it is God, it doesn't mean God is pleased with that individual. Never be mesmerized or enamored by the public gifts of the Spirit because that is God doing his thing. Give God the glory. Be thankful for his manifestation and demonstration among his people, but don't, don't ever exalt the person being used. I, I'm reminded as I think constantly about um, Balaam's donkey. Balaam was a, her he was not a heretic, he was a soothsayer. Uh, he was a, a fortune teller. We don't have any, any uh, indication that he feared or honored God. He had a donkey he rode, and that donkey was used in several gifts of the Spirit and actually had some fruit of the Spirit too, faithfulness being one. He even testified of it. If you remember the story of Balaam's donkey, the Lord has rebuked Balaam and said, don't go, don't go. And he goes anyway back to um, Palestine to prophesy and to curse Israel on behalf of Balak. Uh, Balak was, uh, I think, an Amorite king or Amalek, Amalekite. It's one of the A kings. And all of a sudden, the, the donkey can see the angel. But seeing an angel is called the discerning of spirits. And the donkey freaks out. And, uh, and anyway, Balaam starts beating the donkey because the donkey doesn't want to go where the angel's blocking the way. The prophet, the soothsayer, can't see the angel. So he begins to whip and kick the donkey to get the donkey to go. And finally, the donkey speaks. Well, that's tongues and interpretation of tongues. And the donkey speaks by the Spirit of God and says, why are you beating me? Have I not always been faithful to you? Now, Again, we'll cover, we've already covered, or excuse me, we will cover the gifts of the Spirit so we'll understand the nuances. So he starts saying what he's already done, which is, I've always been faithful to you. That's past tense. That's a word of, of knowledge. And, and so he's talking and being used technically in at least four gifts of the Spirit. 
all on behalf of a rebellious soothsayer. We're talking about why we're not mesmerized by the gifts of the spirit, but we're focusing on the fruit. So the prophet goes on, the angel talks to the, the prophet, the soothsayer, Balaam, but he ends up being used of God, this Balaam prophet, soothsayer, and he begins to even prophesy by the spirit of God about a scepter coming out of Jacob. Now that scepter coming out of Jacob, of course, is Jesus Christ. And he is used by God three times to bless Israel, though Balaam himself isn't interested in God. Though Balaam himself is very filthy greedy, though Balaam himself ends up betraying Israel and selling out their secrets, things he could only know by the spirit of God, he sells out those trade secrets to Balak for money. And that secret was, listen, Balak, I can't curse them. My gift won't allow me to. But I know how to get God to curse Israel because I really want your money and you promised to pay me money if I'd curse Israel for you. I can't curse them, but here's what you do. Give me the money, I'll tell you what you do. All right, here's the money. All right, here's what you do. Get them to sin. Get them to marry your children. Get them to worship your devils, your idols, and God himself will wipe them out. That's called the doctrine of Balaam. And so that's what happened. And even though Balaam, this prophet, this soothsayer, this pseudo-prophet, even though he's operated in the gifts of the spirit, discerning of spirits, angels, prophecy, word of knowledge, past tense, word of wisdom, future tense. He's used in multiple gifts of the spirit. He's a dirty dog. And nobody publicly would have ever known that because God's dealings with Balaam were in private. And in the end, Balaam died a filthy animal among the pagans. This is just an example why we're not gonna get hung up in my church, this church that I pastor, we're not gonna get hung up on the gifts. We want the gifts. We manifest the gifts. We're all for the gifts, but they don't prove anything except that God is doing something. And just because God is using somebody publicly doesn't mean he's approving of them privately. And that's an important lesson to learn. Just because God uses you publicly doesn't mean he's impressed or pleased with you privately. We're going to emphasize the fruit of the spirit because Jesus never said the gifts glorify him. He said, herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. All right. Every Christian is designed to bear fruit. This is how we, uh, excuse me, this is how people will know you are alive and walking with Jesus. Your life is bearing fruit. Now, I should throw out there this kind of curveball. The scriptures tell us it is possible to bear stink berries. I believe it's Isaiah 9. The Lord complains about his people Israel. He said, I planted them a goodly vine and I, I planted a hedge of protection and I fertilized them and I dunged them and digged them and watered them. And when I looked for them to bear grapes, they bore stink berries. So we might could use that as an example and say, you're going to bear fruit. The question is, is it good fruit or is it a bunch of stink berries? People know you by your fruit. Jesus said you must habitually walk with him to bear fruit. So our first verse is John 15, four and five. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Jesus said, I am the vine. We are the branches. We're nothing but a stick. Wow, that doesn't seem so huggy or needy or important, but we're sticks. We're the branch. He's the vine. You break the branch off, we produce nothing. 
He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you're not bearing much fruit, it's revealed here that it may be because you're not habitually abiding in Jesus. But if you will abide in him, you can bring forth much fruit. So the Lord obviously is expecting us as Christians who claim to walk with him, not just Sunday morning church only. He's expecting us to bear much fruit, not stink berries, not little craisins or I don't know what tiny little fruit. He's wanting much fruit, a cornucopia of fruit. He's wanting watermelons and and grapes and apples and oranges and kiwis and bananas and star fruit and lychee fruit and I don't know, papaya and mango and strawberries, blueberries, everything. Not just your little favorite kind of raisin looking fruit or your stink berries, much fruit. That's the name of the game, much fruit. So what does Christian fruit look like? Well, Galatians 5.22 tells us that. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Nine fruit that the presence of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the word of God in our life, and we might even say discipleship. Nine things we ought to be bearing, producing, and manifesting. Now we say in conjunction because it's not just the the spirit doing this. If it's fruit, then we know that we can apply the allegory of planting and, and agriculture. So this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit produces on the Word sown in your life and in my life. And we understand that you can't just go throw seed and have an automatic instant harvest. This thing called bearing the fruit of the Spirit is a work. It's a continuous work. You plant. You water. You cultivate. You keep the birds of the air away. You water some more. You you pull the weeds out some more. You provide some shade, you pray for rain, you you water it yourself. It takes time. It's not just the Holy Spirit moving in your life, it's the Holy Spirit and the Word. And then your labor. And the three of these working together, the Word, the Spirit, the labor. Sometimes the labor is, uh, is discipleship, it's correction. This all works together to produce the fruit of the Spirit. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean you have any fruit. If you're born again, you probably own a Bible. It doesn't mean you have any fruit. You have the full potential, but you have yet to yield or produce any. I want to go back and read this John chapter or this passage here in John 15. I think it's critical. John 15, verse two says, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Now this this is a terrifying passage. I, I We don't hear these terrifying passages preached much anymore. The name of modern Christianity is make everybody feel good. Almost, now that I think about it, it's almost like modern Christianity is is like, uh, what's that, hospice care. Just dope everybody up on feel-good morphine and wait for them to die. Let's fluff their pillow, let's rub their feet, let's dope them up, make them numb, not even deal with the cancer they're dealing with. But there's other verses here that give us hope. They hurt, but they give us hope. Every branch in me. So Jesus is declaring there are branches that are technically in him, connected to him. 
And if they're not bearing fruit, he takes them away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it or prunes it that it may bring forth new fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except you abide in me. No, no more can you except you abide in me, abide in the vine. We have to make sure that if we have called upon the name of Jesus Christ, we are abiding in Jesus Christ. We got to make sure that we're bearing as much fruit as we know and that we're looking to bear more fruit. Most gardeners, they fall in love with gardening and so the next year they plow a little bit more of their yard under so they have more fruit to grow. And they try different things. They don't just stick with all tomatoes. They'll try okra, zucchini. Everybody I know that gardens says, well, this year I think we're gonna try this. They can't wait to try more and bear more and taste of their own fruit. For some reason, Christians are getting less and less fruit. They're allowing more and more of their garden to be overtaken with weeds and thorns and the cares of this world. You shouldn't do that. So let's look at these nine fruit one by one and briefly describe them so we can be encouraged and know whether we have them or not. The first fruit of the Spirit, and the primary one we should say, is love. And, and we add this, the fruit of the Spirit is God reproducing His character in us. This is God reproducing His character. God is love. There is the joy of the Lord. There is the peace of God. He is the Prince of Peace. God is long-suffering. God is gentle or kind. God is good. And he, in goodness, has that flavor of generosity to it. God is faithful. Even when we're unfaithful, he yet abides faithful. God is meek in that there is a humility to God. The Bible says of Jesus Christ, though he were a man, he yet learned he humility by the things which he suffered. Though he were God, yet learned he humility. And then temperance, self-control. God is very self-controlled, self-disciplined. He doesn't fly off at the handle. Everything our Lord God does is disciplined and orchestrated. He's God. He's perfect. But these nine fruit of the Spirit are God or the Spirit of God reproducing the character of God in us. And just like you have to cultivate and develop character and behavioral traits in children, God's doing it in us, his kids. So the first characteristic of God or the first character trait is love. Not hippie love. I think we could try to improve or redeem and redefine love from now until Jesus Christ comes back and never succeed because love has been so hijacked, misaligned, repurposed. Nowadays, we think of love as no condemnation, no judgment, no critique, no critical assessment, no correction. Just leave me alone and blow smoke up my tailpipe and that's love. That is the shallowest thing I've ever heard of. Love warns, love corrects, love endures, love judges, and once it's done judging and finding what's wrong, love commits itself to improving the problem and fixing it. Love lays down its life. Love will stop and say, stop doing this, you're hurting yourself. Love is honest, love doesn't lie, love doesn't flatter, love doesn't have any smoke to blow up anything's tailpipe. So we got to drop this whole 1960s free love, man, hippie. Uh, yeah, we got to drop all that junk. The, the hippies pioneered free love and all they got out of it was STDs and a fried brain off of LSD. And those folks are our politicians today. Whew. The God kind of love is agapeo or agape. 
We pronounce it here in, in America as agape, but it's agape and agapeo. This is, this is not the God kind of love, though it's the love ascribed to God. This word is also used to describe sinful people in the Bible using this kind of love to love the world. The Bible says of Demas, he had forsaken Paul having agapeoed this present world. Agapeo is basically love that sacrifices without asking anything in return. And that's why we call it the love of God because God gave of his only son and didn't ask anything in return for it. He died for us when we could do nothing in return. It's possible to have agape or agapeo towards anything but God. Uh, we call that obsession. We call that idolatry. This is roughly defined in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 13, 3 through 8. Let me read that to you. I have that printed off and taped to the front of my Bible because I preach out of a King James, but this is Amplified. Amplified is the best uh, place to read this passage. I like to pray it over myself and I pray it over myself when I pray for our marriage, my marriage. Let me, I'm gonna pray it right now and show you how I pray it over myself in regards to my marriage and, and really just my biblical love walk. So beginning in verse four, Father, I know I'm born again and therefore your love is shed abroad in my heart. Therefore, I can endure long and I am patient and kind. Because of your love, I am never envious nor do I boil over with jealousy. According to your word, your love in me causes me to never be boastful or vainglorious, and I do not display myself haughtily. Your love helps me to never be conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride. It allows me to never be rude or unmannerly, and I do not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in me, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for I will not be self-seeking. I am not touchy or fretful or resentful. I take no account of evil done to me and I will pay no attention to a suffered wrong. Because of your love in me, shed abroad in my heart, I will not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but I will rejoice when right and truth prevail. Your love allows me to bear up under anything and everything that comes and I'm ever ready to believe the best of every person. My hopes are fadeless under all circumstances and I endure everything without weakening. Because of your love in me, I will never fail because your love, love never fades out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. Amen. Now we might couple that together with Philippians where Philippians says, uh, I pray that you would increase with all knowledge and love. Is that right? And I pray that your love, here's, watch what love also contains. That's, 1 Corinthians 13 is great. Here's another aspect though of love. I pray that your love would abound yet more and more in knowledge. So love has to have a knowledge element and in all judgment. So Paul prayed that the Philippians, that their love would abound in more and more judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent. How do you approve excellent things? You have to know right from wrong and then be able to say this is right, this is wrong. I disregard this because it's wrong and I approve this because it's right. There is a, a judgmental aspect to love. Every parent, even the pagans understand that. That you may be, uh, that you may approve that, uh, things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense. Without judgmental love working in your life, 
you will be an offensive Christian. The only way to flee offense and be without offense until the day of Christ is to be able to operate in true biblical love, which can know and judge things to approve excellent things and reject offensive things. Sadly, today's churches are teaching us how to reject biblical love, embrace hippie love, and be critical of nothing that's sinful, and therefore become a giant smoking offense to our God in heaven. Let's move on to joy. (laughs) The joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah 8.10 is the famous verse Uh, we've we've looked at or, or we'll cover in these lessons the fact that everything we do for God has to have a, an element of joy. I like one, one song we used to sing in this church that joy is an outward expression of an inward hope. Joy is evident upon your face. Joy is evident in your tone of voice. Joy is evident in a sparkle, a literal sparkle that's in your eye. If you have to go around advertising that you're joyful, you are not joyful. Even as the Lord said, why are you cast down? Why is your countenance fallen, Cain? If you'd done this joyfully, wouldn't you be accepted? Joy is an outward expression of an inward hope. And we're to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy unspeakable means you don't have to brag about it or trump it up or advertise it. It's evident and it is our strength. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is based on outward circumstances and situations. Joy is like the internal nuclear engine inside a trident submarine. Joy is on the inside of you, driving things outward no matter what's happening in the natural. Joy is totally independent of circumstance and situation. And joy is is Paul and Silas beaten and whipped in chains and stocks, singing and praising God all night long, full of joy though they were in misery in their physical bodies. We want to make sure that we are joyful Christians. It is our strength and it will cause so much victory to come to our life. Without joy, we have no strength. It is an outward expression of inward hope and we ought to be able to see it on your face. One of my pastors, Pastor Tim, used to say, smile, it adds face value. (laughs) Smiling is a lot better. Peace, my peace I give unto you. This is the third fruit of the Spirit. Christians ought to operate in peace. We ought to be able to be relaxed. We ought to be chill. Uh, We ought to be able to be calm, not rash, but confident, courageous. We ought to be able to uh, hold our peace. Uh, Luke says, uh, in your patience, possess your soul. Peace is a great possessing force. When you're at peace, you can't be pulled off sides. When you're at peace, you don't make rash, frantic decisions. The psalmist said, in my haste, I said, all men are liars. Not all men are liars. Everybody's lied, but we're not all, what's the word? We're not all constant liars. What's that term I'm looking for? Professional liars, that's not it. We're not all practiced liars. When we're out of peace, we we say emotional things. Years ago, I, was, I got a little emotional on a job site and I got real irritated with a coworker. And what made me so mad after the fact was he, he very mild mannerly rebuked me and he was so right and that made me even more mad. But what he said to make me mad was so unbiblical. He basically espoused heresy. And I said, I, well, I, I told him he needed to shut his mouth for one. We almost got in a fight. This has been a long time ago. And I said, every time, every time you open your mouth, the only thing that comes out is a bunch of junk. You're full of junk. 
And he just calmly looked at me and said, you know, Chris, when you use words like every, all, and always, you're very emotional. Because every all and always is not always accurate or true. You're using those words right now because you're very emotional. Oh, he was right and it made me so mad. (laughs) But if I had had peace, I could have logically disputed with him from the scriptures why what he was saying was heresy. Peace keeps you from saying, you never do this and you always do that. And this is never going to work. And I should have never done. Uh, you need like some soul Calgon. Calgon, take me away. The peace of God will keep you from being pulled off sides. And it'll keep you from using those massive inclusive terms that aren't accurate. Sometimes, well, this is probably applying, applying to you in your marriage. When you get Uh, out of peace with your husband or wife. You never do this. You're always this way. That's not accurate. It may feel that way in the moment, but you're not helping the problem by exaggerating. Peace keeps you from exaggerating. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, but he gives us peace. Notice that there are two kinds of peace then according to Jesus Christ. The God kind of peace and the world kind of peace. Which do you think is superior? The God kind of peace. The God kind of peace is a peace that passes understanding. We just don't get it. But the world's peace is cheap, hollow. It's cheap. It's made out of tin. It's not made out of steel or titanium like God's peace. God's peace is beyond natural peace. And nobody understands it. He even told us it's beyond understanding. It's peace that passes all of our understanding. And this is a peace we have to labor for. This is a peace we have got to speak to possess our soul so we're not squirrely. We're not up today and down tomorrow and up today and down tomorrow. Uh, we're, we're not happy today and sad later this afternoon. Peace keeps you from having to live for the weekend. Peace, when you've got peace, you never have to say TGIF. Thank goodness it's Friday. You don't have to live for vacation when you have peace. When you have peace, you have peace. And all you have to do is the next thing that's in front of you, whether it's work, whether it's a yard project, whether it's another exam, Peace you have to contend for. Jesus rebuked the storm and he said, peace, be still. You're going to have to learn how to produce that constantly in the storm of your soul, the storm of your mind. That brings us to long suffering. Actually, let's back up. These first three, because the nine fruit of the spirit can be broken down into groups of three. All right. The first three relate to our relationship with God. From our relationship with God, we produce love, joy, and and peace. These are direct components in our relationship with him and his relationship with us. Love, joy, peace. We love, joy, peace. You see, there's us and God. The next three deal with our relationship with individuals, our fellow mankind. And so with those, you have long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. They, They explain or they're fruit that benefit our relationship with one another. With mankind, we must be long-suffering. With mankind, we must be gentle. With mankind, we must be good. You can't really demonstrate those towards God. You demonstrate love, joy, and peace with God, and he reciprocates it back to you. But long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness, that's, that's affecting your relationship horizontally. And I hope you can see how that's broken down. So what's long-suffering? Long-suffering is patient endurance. 
It's the ability to put up with a situation. A situation you'd rather it not exist. It's the ability to remain under. Under torment, under pain, under hardship. This is a word that the martyrs have to cling to. The persecuted church has to cling to this. Uh, A wife married to a pagan who lets her go to church but not much else. She has to cling to this word. This is not the same word as patience. Patience is childish compared to long-suffering. Not that, I'm not trying to knock patience, but compared to the extremity that is this word, this original word in the, in the original Bible language, patience is juvenile. Patience is you kind of sitting in a chair, kicking your legs, waiting, waiting, waiting. You're in a comfortable chair. You're in a comfortable room. The lights are nice. They're pleasant. Maybe you got some easy listening music. The temperature's just right. You just have to wait. It's just a little taxing on your your soul, but not much. Maybe a little bit if you're given over to boredom. Long-suffering is you're sitting in that chair. It's hot. It's sweaty. Time is, is dragging by, and they're persecuting you. They're cussing you. They're throwing rocks at you. They're pummeling your face, and you don't know when it's gonna stop. And you have to love them at the same time. That's long-suffering. A more mild example is patience is waiting while you drive 26 miles. Long-suffering is running 26 miles. It takes time, but one is a lot more painful than the other. God demonstrates this quality towards us, and he has placed the same ability within us. We have to now demonstrate that towards fellow mankind. A hard boss, uh, an unruly neighbor, Uh, someone we're believing to come to Christ, maybe the persecutor in our life, and everybody is probably going to have some kind of persecution, whether it's a snide workmate or a fellow student, somebody that jabs at you. I think if if you replay your life, you will have had a persecutor somewhere that you had to dig deep and find some long suffering to put up with. Maybe it's an attack from the enemy. Maybe it's a sickness or a disease or or a financial thing that you maybe didn't do to yourself but it's been brought upon you. Either way, it's not just a passage of time. It's a passage of time that's painful simultaneously. We need this fruit called long suffering. I would add this. God is long suffering with us, but he is not forever suffering. So don't mistake God's long-suffering for his infinitesimal patience because he'll move on from somebody if they don't get it right eventually. He even taught us, dust your feet off after a while and move on. If the Lord told us to do that, if Jesus taught us to do that, he said, I only say what I hear my father say and only do what I see my father do. There are times when God is done with long-suffering and he moves on. Gentleness. This is the word kindness. And again, This demonstrates or teaches us how we have to interact with fellow man. God wants us to be kind towards them. Now, please don't don't mistake kindness for rolling over and being abused, especially when it's in your power to stop the abuse. I use the extreme example of if someone breaks into my home and assaults my daughter, I'm not turning the other cheek and giving them my wife or my other daughter. That's not biblical. Turn the other cheek has nothing to do with letting somebody propagate violent sin against you. Uh, Even thinking about that makes me so angry. And kindness is not what you give to somebody who is violent. Kindness is not what you give to somebody who's threatening you. Kindness is what you give to pagans who are just rude by nature and and they're just kind of rough and callous. 
I actually, the more I think about it, this kindness, this is what some Christians have trouble even giving one another in church. Some people are unkind towards their spouse. Some, some men are very unkind towards their wife. Some, some mamas are very unkind towards their children. The Bible says of the Proverbs 31 woman that the law of kindness is in her mouth. A lot of women in America are not very kind. They're shrill. And they're, they're nasally and nagging in their, in their attitude. So this kindness is not, it's not this blank check that we give everybody who wants to break into our house and rape them. Oh, you want to rape my wife? Well, let me, I got to be kind. Let me put on some coffee, tea maybe. Or you, you want a pizza? No, 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 no. That's the fruit called pump action shotgun. Double up buck alternating slugs. <laughs> the Lord says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. That provision includes safety and security. Amen. I like the bumper sticker on the house that says, this house is protected by Smith and Wesson. Well, I, I, was, I was doing a geology job one time. Actually, it was a geology field trip. And we had to pass by this house to go to this cave to look at some things. And I remember this, this house had these two great big Doberman pincers. Beautiful textbook junkyard dog. I mean, there's not a more vicious guard dog than a Doberman pincer that I can think of. I even think they had the stereotypical spike collars. And there was a sign on the fence. I got so tickled at it. It said, the dogs can make it to the fence in 1.2 seconds. Can you? <laughs> I said, God bless America and the German Dobermans. Amen. The Lord looks forward to showing us his kindness during the ages to come. Now that's kindness towards us in heaven. We're to be kind and polite. We're, we're to give none occasion for stumbling. Uh, this, this, this fruit might be a lot more applicable in today's society than ever before when we don't even have manners anymore. We're so eager to jump and growl and fight and debate and bicker on social media. I personally think social media is the biggest kindergarten on the planet. We have no ability to disagree anymore. All we have is a bunch of little children who have careers pounding their chest saying, no, I'm right and you're stupid. No, I'm right. You, no, I, I know I am, but what are you? I know I am. Hashtag unfollowing you. Oh, my nation is so immature. Hashtag follow me. Hashtag selfie. How about some kindness? This is how we're to treat one another. With respect until you've earned the right to be arrested. And then you don't have to be so kind. You can defend yourself. Goodness is our next one. This means uprightness of heart and life. And I want to add here that there is an element of generosity here. And when you think about it, when you think about being good to someone, there's always going to be this generosity that comes out of you. When you think about someone you like and you think, I want to be good to them. I want to be good to them. It's not always hugging them. It's not always giving them an encouraging word. But that, some people are very generous with their hugs. Some people can be said to be generous with their compliments. But sometimes you want to sit down and take them out to eat and pay for it. I want to be good to you. I, I want to give you a job and I want to pay you well. I want to be good to you. There's generosity there. And then you hear that they maybe like something. You can't help but maybe, maybe want to go buy it for them and be generous towards them. So this word 
goodness, maybe for you, if you're listening or watching this, maybe you're stingy, maybe you're a tightwad. The fruit of the Spirit wants to help you become good and generous in some things. Without Jesus, it is impossible to have goodness in you. Jesus said, why, call thou, why callest thou me good? There's none good but the Father. And now the Father's in us through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to be good and to do good works. Most of our works that we do for the Lord, we do because of, we're, of our generosity. We sacrifice. We want to be generous in our time, generous in our labor, generous in our, in our uh, sacrifice. It's in us. It's a fruit. And you see that this is demonstrated towards fellow man. So these middle three fruit reflect how the fruit of the Spirit wants to help us horizontally in, the, in our life. The first three fruit are vertical. They kind of help us in our relationship with God. They develop love, joy, and peace. And our last three fruit are faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. These describe your personal character. Faithfulness is a character trait. Meekness is a character trait. Self-control is a character trait. You regulate these in your own life. Self-discipline is for your own life. Faithfulness is how you're presenting in other places and your commitment. Meekness, that's your teachability, your humility. So faith, faithfulness. King James says faith. The word is pistis in the Greek, which can be translated faithful. Most translations call this faithful or faithfulness. And this means that this fruit in your life produces dependability, commitment, loyalty, constance, steadfastness. God wants you to be faithful to your job, faithful to the time card, faithful to your spouse, faithful to your church. God wants you faithful to him. Some Christians, they, they, they're so unfaithful, they, they serve nothing but the God of their belly. They, they come in late, they make a lot of noise, they leave early. Uh, they won't put in any overtime for their boss who's been so good to give them a job. They flirt with other people that aren't their spouse. They look at things that aren't their wife or their husband. That's not faithfulness. The Holy Spirit works to make us as faithful as he is. And we need this fruit so much in our life. Faithfulness will make you promotable on your job. Faithfulness will make you promotable in the kingdom. Faithfulness will make your marriage beautiful. You want it in your life as you have children so your children grow up eating healthy spiritual fruit. Mom and dad love to come home and be with the kids and kids learn that family's awesome and they want to have an awesome healthy family of their own. Kids ought not want to turn 18 and hurry up and get out of home. Uh, there's something wrong in the home when the kid lives his last teenage years counting down the days till his birthday. Either mom and dad have failed or that kid's picked up a rebellious spirit. If we believe not, he yet abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Even when we're unfaithful, the Holy Spirit still remains faithful to us and he wants us to produce this fruit in our lives for his glory. Let's look at this last page here, meekness, temperance. Again, these last three, they describe and want to help our personal character. Not weakness here, but humility, teachability. Meekness is humility and teachability. Not, not weak, 
Humble people aren't weak or meek people are not weak. Weak people are very strong. They're teachable. They get better. Navy SEALs have to be very meek. In fact, there for a while I was reading every Navy SEAL book that came out after Afghanistan and Iraq. And one of the things I saw in every one of those books, and there's, there's been probably 10 or 15 published. I've probably read seven, eight, nine of them. Every time the Navy SEALs run a mission, they come back as a team because Navy SEALs operate as a team. They come back as a team and they talk about what everybody did wrong. That takes meekness. They don't do it to put anybody down. They don't do it to lay blame. They do it to improve the performance of the next assignment, realizing that one failure can cost somebody or everybody their life. So please don't think meekness is weakness. Meekness is a sign of tremendous strength and it's a sign of a desire to improve and get better. The spirit of God on the inside of us will make us humble and teachable. If you don't want to be taught or corrected, you are quenching the Holy Spirit's work in your life. The Lord Jesus says, though he were God or the son of God, yet learned he obedience, learned, learned. That means Jesus was meek. Yet learned he obedience, which means he had to receive instruction. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. The work of God on the inside of us wants to make us meek or teachable. I think that word will help us understand it better. It's not everything about meekness, but it's a good place to start. The Holy Spirit will work to make you look and act just like Jesus. Jesus was humble and teachable. And that brings us to the last fruit, which is temperance. This is a cuss word today. Temperance means self-control, restraint. This is the ability to control your sensual, or we'd say your natural or carnal appetites. This, this is you. This last fruit, it bookends the fruit of the Spirit. Love, love, which defines every motive we do. You kind of see the dreamy hippie thing. Love is the first bookend. Self-control is the last bookend. If every motive is not in love, we fail. If we don't keep our flesh under, we become sinful carnal, we fail. Honestly, everything in between has a lot of ebb and flow to it. But if we don't have our love walk right, Faith works by love. No love, no faith. No faith, you fail. Self-control. Self-control is the secret to holiness. How do you beat lust? Self-control. How do you beat gluttony? Self-control. How do you beat greed? Self-control. How do you beat vain imaginations? Self-control. How do you beat money wasteful or prodigality, wasting money? Self-control. How do you beat drug addiction? Self-control. Self-control is a fruit that defines everything in our carnal, sensual body that we can't get rid of till we die. It's, it's, there's a reason self-control is the back bookend of your life. These love and self-control are the two bookends that keep your act together. You pull either one of them, everything falls apart. You can have self-control, but without love, it falls apart one way. You can have love like the squishy hippies, but without self-control, you fall apart like everybody else. You've got to have these bookends of love and self-discipline to get your, your act right for God. At the time of this recording, one of the books I'm working on is called Fat, Broke, and Crazy, Rediscovering the Fruit of Self-Control. Fat, obesity, poverty, and mental health 
are the three biggest issues in our nation. America is one-third obese. America is one-third broke. America, as of this recording, is one-third mentally ill. And all three of those arena, obesity, finances, and mental health are dealt with in the scriptures, and the fruit of self-control is tied to all of them. You have to get self-control in your life. You must possess this to gain the victory over your sinful nature. These fruit glorify God and they testify of our walk with God. Matthew 7, 16 says, you will know them by their fruits. That's how people know us, by our fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Implied, understood, no. So you are known by the fruit of your life. Good fruit, good reputation. Bad fruit, bad reputation. We've been given the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to make the best fruit possible. Just as natural fruit will draw men and women to a tree to partake of it, so the fruit of the Spirit is designed to draw people to our tree. The tree in our life is the cross, that they might partake of it. And if you and I will abide in Jesus, we will bear much, much fruit. Father, I thank you for this lesson. May these dear listeners, these these dear saints draw upon the spirit of God, draw upon the word of God and bear great fruit for you that your name would be glorified in their midst. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to teach these lessons in Jesus name. Amen.